Hello, this is Kat. This is Phoebe. Welcome to Feminine Chaos. Phoebe, what are we talking about today? Well, so we've decided to do something interesting um, with my house. You want to know what it is? I do. We've decided to remove the one existing toilet because it's really not very classy to use the toilet, right? It's like disgusting, <laughs> you know? So we're just going to chuck it, put it, you know, in the front yard where you put the things that um, that you have no use for. Maybe somebody else has a use for a toilet. Nobody in my household uses the toilet. We are We don't produce waste. We just don't. We're too classy for that to upscale, to posh, to uh, nobility, whatever, um, noblesse oblige. And that's it. We are done with toilets. Well, I, I support this endeavor that you've decided on. It actually reminds me of this movie I once saw. Um, I think it was called The Discreet Lives of the Bourgeoisie. And uh, in it, you know, they were they were depicting these people sitting around a table at a dinner party, each each on his own toilet. Um, they were all sitting on the toilets around a table, kind of talking and flushing, and um, you know, just <laughs> generally having a good time. And then, um, and then they decamped at the end of the toileting to little individual rooms where they ate in privacy. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing with not having a toilet in the house is it's very much like you know how people keep talking about these adult baby fetishists who wear a diaper. Uh, yes, do you think I, this is? <laughs> I too have listened to that episode of Bar Pod. Yes, thank you, thank you. Because this is this is uh, somebody had sent me a DM about diaper discourse, and I had thought I have no idea. Like I was like, huh, that sounds funny, but I don't know what that is. And then I was like, oh, because I caught up on Bar Pod. I was like, oh, okay, now I see. But do you think that these are not so much fetishists as people who have removed all the toilets from their home, only to find, <laughs> however many minutes to hours later, why that's a mistake? And have gone running out to the nearest pharmacy, I suppose. Um, oh, I was going to say to a, na- a neighbor's house. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, to purchase something in lieu of. Because um, that would really be the only alternative. Because that's the whole thing. So in all seriousness, we are going to put in a powder room so that we can have a second toilet in my home. If we had the money, we would literally line our house with toilets. But um, that's because there's uh, one household member who is still in diapers, but uh, a, a ba- an actual baby, not a pretend baby. But... <laughs> it's your husband. <laughs> it's, you know, certainly. <laughs> yeah, you know, all of us, all of us. And anybody who passes our threshold we, is handed one. Um, but yeah, so I think um, it, there's really two choices in life. It's, it's either diapers or toilet. Um, but the reason we're talking about this is because the... Very funny, but very wrong. British writer Catelyn Moran wrote an essay for the British Times, the the Times, not the New York Times, the, the not New York Times, about um, how she is adding a kitchen extension, but not a toilet. She's not including a toilet. And the reason and no, there's going to be no downstairs loo. OK, it's all written in British English. So we'll translate loo being some sort of toilet. Uh, no, some sort of toilet, <laughs> some sort of toilet, something, whatever hole it is that no, that's in France where it's just a hole. Um, <laughs> it is though. Have you not used a, a bathroom in a less like renovated cafe in France? It's a hole. I mean, check your privilege, Phoebe. No, I, I've I've not traveled to France to use a sub 
subpar, I almost said subterranean, but I guess it's, you know, they're kind of the same thing. Well, in fairness, this, this is something I know about from my husband who's Belgian and like was in places in France that would apparently not have toilets. Um, but I guess at a time when Belgium, Belgium would have toilets. So this is anyway, toilets Just first introduced to France in the year 2010. Um, by a Belgian who was like, what is wrong with you guys? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so Catelyn Moran is being sort of nagged by everyone in her life to include a toilet um, in this renovation in her house that currently, well, this is the mystery. Does it not have any other toilets except for this one upstairs or does it have other toilets and she just doesn't want one on that level and anyway she wrote this funny essay it's obviously like the kind of essay I mean I know it as a writer myself she probably had to do a column on something nothing was in the news that week this is what she chose which no shame no shame but um she explains why she doesn't want to have a bathroom or sorry whatever a powder room where where she might um what did you think of this did you, were you persuaded well i i certainly laughed a lot at it but um i don't know the entire thing felt sort of i don't know i'm not sure that she even really believes herself that she doesn't want a downstairs toilet i think she does want the coat closet that described at length of its necessity to hold coats and shoes and Crocs of which she owns eight pairs. Um, that may be the most offensive thing about this essay to me is just like, that is an egregious number of Crocs, like absolutely preposterous Croc collection. But um, I have one pair and it's one pair too many. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I've, you know, to have a proper household balance, like you have to have a proper ratio of Crocs to toilets could you use could you kind of repurpose a, a particularly large crock they have holes in them don't they well you could sort of shift it around anyway um yeah <laughs> she does have a, yeah so you understood about the coat closet i did i mean sort of you know i understand the idea of there being limited space in the downstairs i'm picturing i don't know why i'm picturing a very narrow house that is maybe attached on either side to other houses. I think that's what they are. So in Britain, which I'm an expert in from television shows only, the houses are something called two up, two down, apparently, a lot of them, which means that they are these attached row houses um, with, with like a living room and a kitchen and two bedrooms. So that's downstairs and then upstairs, two bedrooms. As I understand it, that is how many, many houses in britain are not all of them i don't think that like prince harry even if he's just swinging by is going to be in that sort of abode but i think that's pretty standard there so my understanding is that you hear a lot about um extensions people doing an extension there because what they're doing is they're adding a third room right so like Mm. like in my house there's a living room that's like a very small living room, like much smaller than a living room in an apartment, but there's a living room, a dining room, and a kitchen, and these are separate spaces. But I take it that in, and that's like how Toronto houses are always laid out. Um, But my understanding is that there, there like wouldn't be that third room. Right. I'm thinking my own house might actually have originally been constructed in this way, the two up, two down way, where we have a, a staircase that goes up, immediately when you come in the door and then um there's a a living room a sort of a parlor type thing that I think was once the dining room and the dining room which was once the kitchen and then somebody at some point added a kitchen 
onto the back of the house. It's just a one-story addition that had to extend into the backyard. And so I'm assuming that this is also what um, Catelyn Moran is doing and what British people do in general when they're trying to extend their attached homes. They can only, you know, grow the house's ass, basically. They, they can appropriate, appropriate the culture of bigger houses that way. Yes. By growing yes. their ass. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's racist and it's uh it's all kinds of problematic. So what was compelling to me about her reasoning for not incorporating a downstairs loo, which I'm going to start I'm going to start calling our bathroom that when we have one downstairs, um, is that if you only can extend the house backward. And you are constrained in terms of where you locate the downstairs loo as a result. You do end up with a situation where you're basically putting a bathroom, like all you have between, say, a bunch of people eating dinner and a person peeing or worse is like a single, you know, not piece of plywood, but a door, you know, that probably is not soundproofed. And for this reason, we opted not to stick a bathroom into the coat closet that is in what once was the kitchen, and I think it used to be the pantry for the kitchen, and is now the dining room. Because I do not want, you know, if I'm having a dinner party, I do not want my guests getting up, walking literally two feet from the table into a bathroom and sitting down and doing bathroom stuff. I mean, that's just like, it's way too close to the food, among other things. I don't know whether, so maybe some of this has to do with like my life prior to this house having been spent in apartments, but just like everything's close to everything. And the idea that there needs to be this kind of buffer zone between spaces beyond a door seems luxurious and, and ideal. But yeah, so we're, we're doing kind of the opposite we're placing a toilet no walls around it right smack dab in the middle of the kitchen oh just like just like the movie i saw no you gotta get one for every family member we're not gonna do quite that but we're not doing something that different so um we have a pantry in the kitchen now that is you know like i guess like Catelyn moran's coat closet a, a very much you know utilized space but it's also the only plausible place for like plumbing wise where a toilet could go so that is going to be off of the kitchen, which means that like if we're eating a meal in the kitchen, which hopefully will be possible with the various things being rearranged, um, it does mean that in theory, yes, somebody could be using the toilet during the meal. Now, I have to put this into the, per the perspective of there was until recently somebody using a potty in the kitchen whenever. Your husband? <laughs> <laughs> No, it was me. It was me. But um, I've got to admit it. But, you know, you heard it here first. But the point is that, like, I think it'll be preferable. And also for the sort of having people over scenario, there would still be the option if we could be in the dining room and um, a bathroom in the kitchen would still be not right there. But also, in all honesty, and this is what sort of struck me about the Catelyn Moran thing, I am not like like she refers to people are having their canapes that's like not happening in my house i could pretend it is so but like when i'm thinking about how we actually use our house the likelihood that there is a large group of people having canapes in an area is so low 
Whereas the likelihood that there's a four-year-old who needs to get to a bathroom immediately is like pretty high. You just have to go with what what's urgent. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why they're called what they're called. You know, you, you cannot pee near the canapes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I think we have our episode title. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that down right now. Or I'll forget it. You'd better. You'd better. <laughs> that's, that's all I'm going to think about. But yeah, we call it now the pantry toilet. There's no toilet there. But there's, I think once there is, you know, God willing, a toilet there, um, it'll still be the pantry toilet. But unless, unless we call it the downstairs loo, which sounds much more sophisticated. But yeah, I mean, so she, like, I found this just a strange article because she says that the reason she doesn't want to have a bathroom downstairs is because of some that there used to be a bathroom in her basement and there was some kind of disgusting plumbing incident at a party at a party don't worry it was social and glamorous as it was all happening but it was still a lot of uh shit um but basically um that would explain why she doesn't want to put that toilet in that location again that's fair but like it doesn't really explain anything about why she doesn't want a different toilet properly installed in a on a different level and also i so does she have other toilets upstairs or just the one because i think that's a really key difference like if there are multiple bathrooms upstairs like perhaps these ensuite bathrooms um maybe it's not so urgent two people could use the facilities at the same time as it is right yes yeah i you know i was unclear on that Uh, also i was unclear on how many people are living in the home which makes a difference um, but this has all actually reminded me of a downstairs bathroom story. I, I don't know if it's really actually a story because nothing exactly happens. But um, in the house that I grew up in, which is not a small British home, um, but did have some quirks. Uh, it was like a big, it was a big Victorian house. It was built in like probably the mid to late 1800s. And we had it a downstairs powder room but the powder room was off the kitchen and also off the front hall so it was accessible by two doors and there was there's also a coat closet in it and of course you know having grown up in this house it never really occurred to me that there was anything weird about this and I didn't think about it at all until I guess maybe the first time that I had a a boy come over, somebody that I was seeing, and he emerged from the downstairs bathroom in a panic because he he'd gone in there to use it and then he realized that there were two ways in and you know the bathroom was too wide for him to like hold one door with each oh, hand no. and there oh, were no God. locks on the doors and so he had to sit there in, <laughs> in terror and of course when you're that scared you kind of can't do what you went into the bathroom to do so he, he came out in a sort of a panic all wild-eyed and he was like is there another bathroom and I had to direct him upstairs um... so yeah that's um that was the case something like that in an apartment we once looked at where there there were like two bathrooms but they they were sort of linked to each other in a way where you would never really quite be private like there was yeah there were two toilets but they were linked to the same shower room interesting yeah I don't know. But yeah, I think two different ways of getting into a bathroom. Yes, I've seen this in apartments. Um, I think ideally you have only the one 
door. So it's something that you see a lot in Europe and or a lot in Europe that I have seen in like a couple places in Belgium um, where my in-laws live is like that the toilet room does not have a sink in it. So the sink is in in the room next door or in one case, I think possibly like in the kitchen. Is there, I don't know. But like once I just remember being in like some Belgian family's home using the toilet and then being in this panic because I couldn't figure out where to wash my hands because there's like no sink anywhere. Yeah, I'm sure I must have eventually figured it out, but I don't remember what the answer was. Like there was a sink, but I don't remember where. <laughs> I imagine you roaming the house, like holding your hands up to avoid touching anything lest you contaminate. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so I think, I mean, we're, we're going to be basically putting the world's smallest sink in with a the smallest standard size toilet into what is now a pantry. And I don't know, I, I guess, yeah, so I found this mysterious why she doesn't want it. It seems to me as as somebody, I you know, like I was accused somewhat of having North American house size, I don't even want to say privilege, just sort of like goggles or something and like not understanding how a downstairs wouldn't have a place for a coat and shoes but like our downstairs does not have any closet like that's not a foreign concept to me we just sort of make do and um you know I still would I would prioritize the toilet over anything so yeah I found it mysterious but I, I do understand the not wanting I guess I kind of understand the not wanting somebody but also like if this is such a raucous party and there's music and so forth. If somebody's in the bathroom, would you even know? Like something pretty <laughs> wild has to be going on in that bathroom if you can hear it over the party. I think that what we are, should understand implicitly uh, from this piece is that Catelyn Moran is a really loud pooper. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. She's, you know, one of the one of these people who like vocalizes as they do it. And so we're <laughs> And like comments on what's what's there, <laughs> like oh look at that! One. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, so, do you think we've reached the uh, the the Peak end poo? of this? Yeah, should we uh, should we flush this topic? And uh... I think we should flush. I think we should move from the from the toilet to the kitchen um, because we are going to now be talking a clean. Oh, it's that Sarah Peterson, the author of Momfluenced, her newsletter is called In Pursuit of Clean Countertops, but her book is not called anything about clean countertops. So that's not really going to segue, but they're on the same topic. So, um, yes, I wrote about a book called Momfluenced for Unheard. Excellent review. It did not make me want to make me want to read the book, but uh, it did illuminate some things for me about the momfluencing world and its pressures and passions. So everybody go check out Phoebe's article on Unheard. Uh, Thank you. And I I don't mean to like tell people to not read the book because I think I think Sarah Peterson is a smart writer I think this book was I would imagine produced under challenging circumstances which I think are actually relevant to the topic here and they kind of bring us back a little bit even to Poetgate um she writes about how her husband she writes multiple times in the book about how her husband is the breadwinner basically and she's writing this in a published you know real you know new book and she's also a freelance writer, like she does other writing. Um, it seems like this might, the conditions of production may have been a little um, 
less than ideal, which is on the one hand, what makes her kind of expert on that topic, but on the other, perhaps challenging in the execution of it. Um, mm-hmm. She had to write the entire thing in the bathroom and they only had one. Sorry, I'm just <laughs> trying <laughs> Well, try to you know it. what? That may not be so far off. Um, but yeah, yeah. So that was, um, it, it's, yeah. And also Elizabeth Nolan Brown also uh, just reviewed it for a reason. So you should check that out um, as well. We had sort of somewhat um, overlapping thoughts about it, I guess. Um, yeah. So tell me uh, and, you know, and our listeners who are, I'm sure, uninitiated into the world of this book and this influencer, what's the deal with Sarah Peterson and what's the deal with her? Is it a memoir or a, like a how-to? Is it self-help? What's what's the story? So Sarah Peterson um, is uh, a freelance writer who writes about sort of motherhood. Not She is not herself a momfluencer, although she often sort of writes about like, if I were like why I'm not so this is obviously on her radar in a way that it is not on the radar of every single woman who happens to be a mother and a writer like it never occurs to me that I might become a momfluencer like this is just I wouldn't have thought of this (laughs) but basically she has written before and 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 writes well about basically this kind of parasocial relationship she has with these apparently very high profile although this is a part of instagram i just don't really find interesting so i hadn't really learned about it these momfluencers who are these as she writes you know rich white thin women with american women with big kitchens and they post these kind of like ethereal um things with their children and the you know the blonde ringlets in the sunlight and the organic food or whatever i don't know this is some part of instagram that i don't find very interesting i don't look at it I have looked at it like I I interviewed Sarah Peterson once um, for an article and through that I found this ballerina farm is the one she writes about a lot. So it's this thing where she has this kind of like intense, as people do, parasocial relationship with these certain influencers. She feels bad about it. So what she does is she sort of goes out in search of, on the one hand, she looks at, and this is what's in the book. Okay, this is what's in Momfluence. She looks at these in one chapter, these far right sort of, I would say probably lower brow, um, sort of like anti-vaxxer, um, sort of conspiracy theorist, QAnon type momfluencers. And this was very frustrating. So she interviews a bunch of people in these other categories, but none of them. She only taught, she interviews like the professors who study them, which sort of like, like she won't touch it, which is a little bit frustrating because like either you're going to talk about it or you're not. Anyway, I don't get into that in my review, but this was something that I was thinking about a bit. But she also then, on the other hand, talks about the good momfluencers who are the ones who are, you know, marginalized according to the ways that counted in this sort of... So this book was published, Momfluence was published in 2023, but reads as extremely, extremely 2020, 2021 in terms of the sort of like white women, white liberal, well-off women feeling bad about being who they are and, you know, passing the microphone to you know giving giving space to or whatever you know making space for however you put would put it then um BIPOC you know also disabled also fat that comes up uh momfluencers lower income momfluencers you know all of the different types of momfluencers who clearly do not she's not interested in buying what they're selling if they are indeed 
selling anything. I guess they're all sort of trying, everybody's sort of trying to sell something, but they're not, it's not that she's like aesthetically drawn to this. It's that her politics say that she should. So it's like, she's very, she's like sort of, it's a little patronizing, you know, like she's really, it's the vegetables, right? And the big slice of cake is the, you know, the ballerina farm. Oh, interesting. I was going to say it sounds like the equivalent of following somebody as like a like a pity fuck, but I don't really know how you <laughs> Well, it's would... something between the two. It's something between the two. It's like, but then what I thought was kind of interesting, and then this I did write about a little, was just the way that like, on the one hand, she's like breaking with her aspirational follows by following these other momfluencers. But on the other hand, at the time of her writing, that was the most aspirational thing to do. You know, if all the upscale baby stores are selling woke baby to sort of <laughs> have on your thought, fo- like, like, look at me promoting the work of these marginalized momfluencers. That was the that was the thing that was the new hotness then. Right. So it's complicated because I think she does genuinely mean well, like she doesn't seem like a performative, obnoxious sort of person, you know, but I think it's tricky. It's tricky. Yeah. So the thing that struck me about this, as as you were describing it in your review, and um, as I was sort of thinking about what what the vibe was and what the mood was surrounding how how white women were supposed to relate to marginalized women, especially in those heady moments during which I think we can surmise this book was being concepted and written uh, a few years ago, that like this is weird position that white women are put in where they're supposed to kind of genuflect towards all things non-white, non-straight, non-cis, otherwise marginalized, um, and to do it in this kind of worshipful way, like, I know I can never understand, I can only, I can only listen and, like, pray that someday I become Mm -hmm. enlightened Um, but then at the same time when you are engaging with an influencer the entire idea is relatability you're supposed to see yourself in this person um, maybe you know a version of yourself that you can't quite achieve because you lack the resources but nevertheless you're supposed to identify with an influencer that's what an influencer is but you're in this bind as a white woman because to say that you relate to or identify with a a woman who's from a marginalized background is to engage in a, a form of like colorblind ideology uh, that is extremely outré right now. Mm-hmm, mm. Oh, so this, wow. Okay, so this gets at so many aspects of this book. Oh my goodness. Okay, so a lot of the book is about how awful it is that it's treated as aspirational to be thin, white, and rich, and cis, and all of this, right? Well, I guess I would sometimes get a little lost in whether this is objectively what is aspirational or whether it just so happens that the author herself has these demographics and is drawn to influencers who share her demographics because not everybody finds these women that compelling. She writes, she mentions, and I I mentioned this in the piece, that she bought a $460 sweater because of these influencers like, not everybody's doing that. Like, I'm not, like, I don't know, like, it just seems like this is not, like, there's some sort of 
like this just might be her world you know what i mean like this just might be um sort of like she's she finds aspirational exactly like you say like a posher slightly posher or just more sort of stylized maybe version of her own life you know and it Mm -hmm. almost seems like it's a little bit there can be something dare I say problematic about assuming that everybody wants to be like those women because it's like putting them on a pedestal that they're not even on you know or not even a pedestal it's like she's the one saying that it's so wonderful to be all these qualities because I don't know that everybody is that bothered about not fitting into them you know so that's that's one aspect of it. Um, There's something very funny about the the sweater story. It's very like, look what they made me do. And then she has a, a footnote about how actually like it's not it's she's trying to avoid fast fashion. So it's probably about ethics or something. But she's also trying to sell the sweater because she realizes that you shouldn't just go out and spend four hundred sixty dollars on a sweater. I don't know. It's weird. And she also says that she had her third child because of momfluencers, which is a strange digression that um probably should be more like unpacked professionally than than in the book but i mean she says it wasn't totally that but it kind of was that and i'm just like whoa this is that's a lot and i don't know how widespread that is and i I guess what i'm saying is she clearly both in her sort of genuflecting at the bipoc momfluencers and in her reaction to the sort of more generic um hyper stylized white momfluencers She's more influenced than most, but also very candid about it and and writes about it in an engaging way. Mm-hmm. But it's just like, is this is it that we moms are under the momfluence or is it that she's under the momfluence more than most? And this is, you know, like, or is she playing it up for the book? But the relatability aspect, I think, is really interesting. And it's in it's it comes up in how the book is written. So often after she has one of her sources quotes, she'll have something like, yes yes or then in another case yes 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 (laughs) and this i had to cut from the piece just because it was like already way too long but when you have that approach to your sources that limits who your sources can be you know so she only would go with people where she's going to agree and find it relatable but then it becomes an issue precisely like you're saying when she starts talking to the marginalized ones because she wants to be like yes yes relatable but she also doesn't want to be like, but she also is very careful to say um, that she doesn't really know what it's like to be in this or that boat. So she is, um, yeah. And there was, yeah, a line that I'm going to quote myself because I'm going to be that asshole. But where I say that she is at her best when she doesn't write as though trying to appease an implacable sensitivity reader, because that's how the a lot of the book does read, that she's trying to... Um, and then, so I read her acknowledgments and it sounds like maybe it's almost like clear from that which editor or whichever, I don't know, editor agent, somebody who she thanks, who was like pushing her to do better. And it's like clear that there literally was this person. Oh, like a sensitivity reader type. Somebody involved in the making of this book who I think was, I don't think this was like a a weird voice in her head. I think somebody was probably like, given when this was written, makes sense, um, sort of pushing her to do better. And she's like, thankful for this. And all I can think is like, uh, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, you have to express your thanks for it, right? Like, what else? What else are you supposed to do? It, well, you have to just, you have to either do it or you're either on that track or you're not, right? Right. Well, I mean, like I think either, the thing is yeah. like you, you know, either you don't 
submit yourself to this form of correction, this form of editing of your work, or you submit to it and you also like gush about how grateful you were for it. Like you can't, there's no, there's no in between where you're like, I'm doing this because I have to. Well, for sure, for sure. I mean, so this is another issue um, that comes up is really the publishing timeline, which is something that I also have given plenty of thought to in my day, which is like, you write something and then it appears what, like two years, three years later is when it's actually being read. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more. But the point is, like, this book just felt very much of that moment. It really felt to me like it captured the time when the influencers were crying and promising to read Robin DiAngelo. Yes, that's the case with so many books that are coming out now that were clearly written kind of in the wake of The Reckoning. And I'm thinking about um, Heather Radke's Butts, A Backstory, which uh, yes. we've, we've talked about in the podcast before, which I reviewed for Unheard. And that is a really good review. <laughs> it, thank you. It, but it had that same sense of, you know, you could, you could feel the influence of this very particular moment that has, I mean, and we should be glad, I suppose, that it has since subsided somewhat. Um, but it's weird to see the kind of flotsam like of it you know coming out in these books that were that were written during that moment but that were never going to land until you know years later I wonder if the authors have feelings about so do I I desperately want to know this because I worry when I'm kind of like rolling my eyes at certain aspects of this that like I just imagine being you know the author reading this and like I just wonder does she still think like Mm -hmm. this did she ever indeed think like this? Was this just kind of something that was like, you know, the bargain with the devil you have to make to have a book published at that time? You know, like it just, um, yeah, I don't know. Like it's not a, I think my own writing is just too out there in the world and people know I don't think like this. So nobody would ever try to get me to do this, you know? So like, I don't, but I think if you're, I, I feel for writers who have their beat, you know, and, it, and they're not really like super political people, but then they sort of get pushed into that because that's what publishing, mainstream publishing was at that juncture. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I'm seeing stuff like this coming out, uh, not just in nonfiction, but also in novels that were written over the past, you know, during during the pandemic, you can see these instances where, like, a, it's it's almost like a fourth wall breaking moment where the protagonist will stop to reflect on like her white privilege or how grateful she is that she had a training in which she learned to use people's pronouns, and it's just oh my goodness, really, wow! It's such a strange thing to encounter on the page, and I I don't know, I wonder. I wonder in the case of novels, especially if people reading these books now, you know, who want to write one of their own, if it's going to end up perpetuating just because like you've got the echoes of this moment now expressing themselves and in, in the books are being published in 2023 in a way that might encourage people to kind of continue this practice because they think that it's entrenched. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the way of it, right? Because it becomes the thing, like it, it gets recorded and that makes it kind of the thing and it will probably extend its 
time. I mean, what was frustrating, I thought, with this with this book is that a lot of it is good and interesting. And, like, I feel like that's what gets lost in talking about it. Because, um, like, what I was writing for Unheard wasn't, like, a straight book review. So I wasn't really able to get into as much about, like, every single angle as maybe that type of piece would have. But it's interesting. Like, and what I did talk about more was, like, this this sort of being a sort of it's not even that you're bored it being just kind of like an exhausted overwhelmed mother of a newborn and like being on your phone and scrolling sort of e-commerce plus the thing where you're kind of like told this like some of this I felt kind of impervious to some of it I didn't but you know where you're told like that you absolutely must have every single thing or else your child will die or else your child will be behind or whatever it is you know and the way that like shopping and sort of also when you have like you know you're you don't have many other outlets for expression the way shopping can kind of take a hold and I mean she's writing about it Peterson is writing about it from the perspective of somebody who clearly has more disposable income than most right like the $460 sweater is just not happening for most people because it just can't but um although with with debt you know it, it can happen for more people than maybe it should happen for but the point is like I thought that was an interesting insight and like whenever she would talk about like her experience it was actually pretty interesting because it wasn't trying to be about like everybody in the whole world you know um and that I thought yeah explained because then it it, that ties in with what the point of the book is which is these people who turn their lives into ads you know which is such a weird idea because you know like when we were young it was all about like don't be a sellout and now it's like be a sellout turn your life into a big ad and often not even a well-compensated ad. And that was also interesting. Right. Yeah. Oh, God, I have, I have like a number of thoughts on this. One of them is that it sounds like Peterson is at her best when she's reflecting on her relationship, um, like her actual relationship as an influencee of the influencers and not saying what she thinks she's supposed to say yes and not covering for blind spots this is like maybe if I have some kind of like philosophy of the writing world or whatever like lean into blind spots lean into subjectivity get rid of sensitivity readers not because it's like censorship but because like nobody has all perspectives and we need to get rid of this illusion that anybody could and I think that's just like this problem in writing now is this idea that every blind spot should be accounted for like no that's life people have blind spots that's normal that's you can't expect otherwise like and I think that yeah yeah also I think that there's another wrinkle to this and it's it's something that I've been sort of like circling mentally trying to figure out how to articulate it but there's something about there's something self-congratulatory about the attempt to kind of preempt criticism by acknowledging blind spot acknowledging privilege you know there are there is a sense in which and and I think it is the case in a lot of writing that aims to not do this and so it ends up kind of shooting itself in the foot by doing this where Saying I acknowledge my privilege is really just a way of saying I'm better than you. Like of I'm, course, be- I'm of better course. than these other people. Well, I tried to argue that many years ago, and it didn't go anywhere. And people are still acknowledging their privilege in every they single are. piece of writing, and it's futile, and it's going to go on till. Well, I think is it just going to become unfashionable eventually? Is that where this is going to? Because that 
One wonders. I mean, I think right now what we have is it has become, I'm trying to think of what the word is, rote or kind of like pathological in a way where people just like throw in a privilege acknowledgement whether it makes sense to add it there or not um this is I mean I think we've talked about this before where it's like somebody will be describing having been like run over by a car yes, and they'll, they'll they'll be like I have to acknowledge like you know it would have been so much worse if I were gay and it's like really like I think that I think when you get hit by a car your organs explode the same oh, regardless I think I think we have both we have both been writing and podcasting on this for literally years and it has not budged this phenomenon and why are people listening to us why are we so bad at influencing (laughs) i think part of the problem um is that the opposition to this is so like it's such sort of culture wars binary thing where either you're ben shapiro or you're acknowledging your privilege and the fact that there's like another normal person approach to these things never seems like possible you know Yeah, I just, I would love it if the people who are engaged in the kind of compulsive privilege acknowledging just took a step back and thought about in practical terms, what it is that they're doing, what it is that they're saying, and what message it actually conveys. And the thing that I, that I have been thinking about a lot um, is land acknowledgements, because I think that they represent kind of like the epitome of, you know, thinking that you're doing something good while actually doing something bad because when you you stand up there and you say I acknowledge that I am on stolen land um and it's like you're standing in front of somebody saying I acknowledge that this thing was stolen from you I you know I stole it or somebody stole it and conveyed it to me uh but I'm not giving it back I just want you to know that I know so I'm just kind of rubbing your face in it and That's the thing where I, you know, I think about when you kind of zoom out from something like a privilege acknowledgement or a land acknowledgement and understand like how this is received if you actually listen to what the words say instead of focusing on the ritual nature of it. It literally, like I literally, if it's in a book I wrote that came out in 2017, I must have written it probably before 2017, like, and it has not changed. It was boasting. Privilege acknowledgments are a form of boasting. I was not the only one making this point. I was like quoting other people who were saying this. Like this has been for truly like a decade almost, I would say, a critique of these privilege acknowledgments. This is something, it's very frustrating because people keep pointing it out. Like I remember like the New York Times writer Jamel Bowie was critical of privilege acknowledging for this reason, like really, really a long time ago. So these are like mainstream progressive people were pointing this out for years and somehow it's just so entrenched. And that's what I just find so strange is that like you would think people would have moved on like so many people were critical of this so long ago but just like it didn't somehow it didn't become the thing I guess and I think the reason would the I guess the obvious is that it's just it's easy right it's to be performative is easy and it's a way around actually doing anything substantive so it's not that people are doing this because they don't know how to actually give the land back to its original inhabitants and they can't figure out how to, you know, change the name on the deed or whatever. It's that they don't want to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I have nothing to add to that. I think you're exactly right. And um, as always. So as as we wind down. Especially, this... I was most right about about removing all bathrooms from my house, though. That was the best idea. Yes. Well, you know, I just have to say that um, here's my advice moving forward for anybody who's uh, who's looking for a takeaway here. When you are using the downstairs loo, 
that is just inches away from a dining table where people are eating. As you sit there, make sure that you acknowledge your privilege so loudly that it drowns out whatever sounds you're making from the other end. <laughs> I have nothing. I have nothing. Uh, okay. I think well, that's yeah. Good advice, right? Do you think you could, yeah. Do you think you could have a flusher that makes that just like plays a little song about privilege acknowledgement? Because there are these Toto toilets that play music. Apparently, oh. I have read about this. That's such. That's the, this is the future of privilege acknowledgement. You press a button and mm-hmm. on your toilet. Yeah, it acknowledges your privilege and flushes whatever you've produced. Your sins. Yeah, <laughs> flush your flush your sins. <laughs> oh my God, this uh, has this been feminine chaos. Oh, has it ever? <laughs> Thank you for joining <laughs> us. Bye. Bye.